new podcast where the goal is to make learning about classical music more fun and accessible for everyone. My name is Seth, and I will be one of the co-hosts on this podcast, along with my lovely wife and teacher of all things music, Allie. Hi! Before we dive into our first topic about Rite of Spring, Allie, would you like to prove why we should believe anything you say? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not so sure that you should believe anything I say, but... I did begin taking piano lessons when I was five years old and have been just immersed in classical music pretty much ever since. I went to school for piano and ended up getting a master's in collaborative piano, um, specifically like playing with other people. And yeah, I don't know that I know everything. Well, I do know that I don't know everything. But um, I hope that I do know enough not to say anything like terribly false. I'm sure if anybody ever listens to this, they will be sure to let us know if we do say anything terribly false. Um, so, yeah, we've been wanting to do kind of a podcasting thing for a while, and it took us a while to find out a subject that we both like to do a lot. Um, we kind of landed on this partially because I think Allie for a long time has had a little bit of a personal crusade in regards to uh, classical music and how it's understood by the greater world. Yeah, classical music just always seems so like hoity-toity and pretentious, and it really doesn't need to be. Like, it was the popular music for so much of our history and was what people just wanted to listen to. So I think that just by learning a little bit about it and understanding like where it fits in history can be really helpful in appreciating it more and not being so scared by it. (laughs) Yeah, I know for me, even being as adjacent as I am by being married to a classical musician, it still feels a little um, out of reach kind of in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me personally, uh, I really love to hear people and especially Ali teach me about their passions and uh, especially in subjects I don't know a ton about like music and classical music in particular. Uh, the the extent of my music background is playing trumpet not all that well <laughs> from elementary school through high school, um, and another really being with Allie for quite a while now uh, and getting to watch her play. I don't have a ton of actual music background, so I'm excited to learn along with all of our listeners that we Yay. hopefully get. Um, so yeah, without further ado, uh, our first episode ever is going to be on a Rite of Spring. Yeah, so I chose this topic because Rite of Spring is one of the most like notorious pieces of music in classical music history. So it's famously known because it caused a riot. And while this is like not the first riot that classical music caused, there have actually been a lot. Um, it's kind of the first one that was that caused a riot for a really like fundamental reason. Like before there were riots because like maybe an opera didn't include a ballet that was long enough. But this specific piece was just so groundbreaking and foreign to the people who heard it that it just kind of like shook their world. So this was like, I guess, were the other riots people mad at doing it wrong? 
I, yeah, to one? a certain extent. So during like the classical era and the romantic era, uh, operas were not really considered an opera unless they included like drawn out ballet sequences. <laughs> and so if somebody was performing an opera, specifically this one was in Paris, uh, they didn't include a ballet that was adequate, at least to what the audience was expecting. And so they got mad and rioted. As you do. As you do. <laughs> So, Rite of Spring is actually a piece that some people will probably be at least like a little bit familiar with. It's not as famous as some other like of classical music's greatest hits, but it was used by Disney in the original Fantasia in a like a segment of the animation where it's showing the creation of the world through the extinction of the dinosaurs. Is that the one with uh, Mickey Mouse and the brooms? Yes. That terrified me. Well, it gave me nightmares that's, as a child. that's not the same piece, but okay. that is the same like overarching movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we might get to The Sorcerer's Apprentice at some point too, which is not. the piece that <laughs> Mickey Mouse is sweeping around the dungeon in. Uh, but anyway, the like the creation of the world through the extinction of the dinosaurs can maybe give you a little bit of an idea of why this piece might not have been received super well because you have to have some music that's fairly like i don't know um violent to describe Mm. the extinction of the dinosaurs so to really truly understand um rite of spring and why it caused such an uproar we have to like do a little bit of background on the history of ballet like being intertwined with classical music and on just a little bit about the composer himself, who is Igor Stravinsky, a Russian composer. So the history of ballet is that like ballet has never been divorced from classical music. Like they developed together to a certain extent. So the classical music come like before and then ballet was like a dance to it. Yeah, so classical music has always been used as a dance form in some capacity. Hmm. So, like, in the Baroque era, classical music was used in courts so that people could, like, dance stately, courtly dances to it. Uh, And ballet rose out of just the dancing that goes along with classical music as a, um, a, like, pure art form. It wasn't for just anyone to do. You had to be trained in it and people could watch it and really appreciate it. So uh, ballet is a French art form, but the specific ballet company that we're going to talk about in connection to Rite of Spring is the Ballet Russe, which was a Russian ballet company founded by Sergei Diaghilev. And he is a really big name in ballet in the early like 1900s, because he founded the Ballet Russe and took them to Paris to perform pretty much all of the really important ballets that classical composers were composing in that era. So he worked really closely with Stravinsky on Rite of Spring, as well as on a couple of other ballets, but he also worked really closely with other classical composers of the time, like Debussy and like Borodin, um, Tchaikovsky. Well, no, not Tchaikovsky. What am I saying? Tchaikovsky was before this. Your first lie. Yeah, really, though. <laughs> so um, the Ballet Russe, the first time that Diaghilev took it to Paris was in 1909. And 
it was not super well received because they like he took it to Paris and the Parisian audience was expecting that because this ballet troupe from Russia was coming to perform in Paris that the music slash the dance that they were doing would be somehow like fundamentally different from the ballet that was going on in Paris at the time. Um, Unfortunately, Diaghilev didn't pick something that was like ex- exotic enough or in like the oriental style enough. Um, and you said he was Russian, right? Yes. So, so oriental was- refers to Russia, Russia as well during this period. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that either at one time, <laughs> but I know it now. So the original ballets that he brought were just too tame for a French audience. So does that mean, like, did he pick just French ballets to perform? Well, no. He had, like, he had worked with a composer to come up with a new ballet. Oh, so it, was, it wasn't original work. Yes, it okay. wasn't original work. It was just that it wasn't different enough from what the French composers and French ballet companies were coming up with. Gotcha. So after this first season that didn't go super well for his ballet company, Diaghilev was like, okay, I really need to find someone to compose a ballet that's going to use like Russian folk music and some more exotic sounding things that are not going to be as prevalent in France. Was this like the first Russian ballet company? I don't think so, but it's really like one of the first really famous ones. Okay. Um, and part of the reason for that is because the Ballet Russe really produced some of the best dancers like hmm. ever, as well as commissioning all of these works that have like gone on to live in infamy. So Diaghilev was trying to find someone to compose a more exotic ballet, and he actually had a really hard time finding someone. He kept asking around in Russia because, like, if you're going to compose a Russian ballet, you probably need a Russian composer. And he specifically was trying to find um, a student of really the most famous Russian composer at the time, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who... Oh, of course. Yes, oh, of course. The, the famous that you have definitely heard of. Uh, but Rimsky-Korsakov was this kind of, like... I don't know, really, really famous figure in Russia as far as his compositions, but also as a teacher. And uh, Diaghilev asked four of Rimsky-Korsakov's students, and they all said no. And he just kind of kept going down the line and asked Igor Stravinsky, who at the time, um, nobody knew. And he wasn't very famous. Was he a student of famous guy? He was, yes. He was also a student of Rimsky-Korsakov. And Rimsky-Korsakov was, like, so impressed by Stravinsky that he gave him lessons for free. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, Stravinsky was already, even though he wasn't famous, like, people in the music world knew about him. The young up-and-comer, Stravinsky. (laughs) Pretty much. Um. But the thing with this, too, is that after the initial season of the Ballet Russe not going so well, everyone was trepidatious with working with Diaghilev because they were like, well, is my music going to be poorly received in Paris? And that's one of the reasons that Stravinsky took the gig is because he, like, didn't really have anything to lose because no one knew him yet. And he was like, I just want to get my name out there. Is classical music for, like, ballet its own 
subgenre kind of thing? Like, do, do you have to change up how you would compose a piece for ballet as opposed to some other, like, classical music? To a certain extent, yes. Like, you have to take into account that, like, someone will be choreographing this. Or, in some cases, the composer and choreographer worked together really closely um, and kind of, like, came up with it together. Uh, but one of the things with music for ballet is that oftentimes it's taken out of context of the ballet later on and just like put into an orchestral suite hmm. so that orchestras can perform it without having to have dancers on the stage. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. A brief like little history of Stravinsky first is he grew up in a music family. His dad was an opera singer with the Russian Imperial Opera. Um, but his, like, his family didn't want him to go into music, which is a very common theme that we will be returning to in later episodes. Well, Rimsky-Korsakov did do the music, um, after a brief, like, tour through law school where he took all the classes but just didn't end up actually becoming a lawyer. And most of that was due to Rimsky-Korsakov being willing to give him composition lessons. Hmm. So, Stravinsky is um very famous for his ballets that he did with Diaghilev and Rite of Spring is not his first ballet so to kind of give you an idea too of exactly how groundbreaking Rite of Spring was we kind of have to talk a little bit about Stravinsky's other ballets because they're not nearly as groundbreaking they're still like really amazing works they're just a little more boring I guess in the grand scheme of things so the first ballet that Stravinsky did for Diaghilev was called The Firebird. And it's a Russian folktale about this like Slavic mythological creature who is really gorgeous and super magical and whose feathers have like an incalcul incalculable worth. Like they're super rare and super just like valuable. Hmm. Is the creature just a bird? Yeah. I mean, it's a woman who is also a bird kind of in between. I mean, essentially what happens in the story is that there is a prince and the prince frees the firebird from the spell that was placed on her. She becomes a princess. They get married and live happily ever after. Oh, yeah. Very cute. Uh, very different from Rite of Spring, which we'll get to in a second. But Firebird was a like huge triumph for the Ballet Russe in Diaghilev. And it was only their second season in Paris, and everyone just kind of went wild for it. Um, and it, like, it satisfied both the audiences and music critics. So, like, it was innovative enough that the critics were like, yes, we like this. And it was also just not, like, banal, but easy listening enough. I can't believe I, I can't believe I just called the Firebird <laughs> easy listening, but easy listening enough that uh, people could listen to it and enjoy it and not cause a riot. What is what is easy listening for classical music? I guess like what are the um, the characteristics that like make it not highbrow? If that makes sense. Well, I mean, that really depends on the era that we're in. OK, so like, on, about this era, I guess then. So we're coming out of the romantic era right now and getting into the modern era. And so the hallmarks of the romantic style is that we have this super lush, 
full orchestras, like really emotional music that sounds good, is fun to listen to, and makes you feel something. As we move into the modern era, it definitely still makes you feel something. But depending on the composer, what you feel could not necessarily be like pleasure <laughs> or um, like you might not like the music that you're listening to. It might be more of a sort of like, I don't know, an academic exercise. So music for masochists. Well, we can get into that in another episode, too. <laughs> but with Firebird, at least, and we're going to listen to a little bit of it right now. But essentially, it's just it's really following what had come before in the Romantic era with this lush, very full orchestra that is mostly tonal, not a lot of dissonance, and just is really enjoyable to listen to. So. Here is part of the finale from The Firebird. being the non-musician that you are what what did you think of that and like what are some descriptors um, that you have for that piece i guess one of like the first thing that came to mind is it felt like the end of like old movies kind of okay yeah um like very much like the uh, like the end of like sound of music and stuff when they're like running away that was very much that kind of feel um so epic yeah epic is a good one uh <laughs> the beginning of it i was like waiting almost like the whole like waiting for the bass drop kind of feel i was like <laughs> is it really just going to be a minute and a half of just the same little bit over and over and over and over again um but yeah it felt like i guess i was feeling like it was super big and bursty and then right when it did that first cut to like the change up mm -hmm. uh i'm sure that's the official music term absolutely uh <laughs> Uh, I thought it was, like, some, like, bad guy showed up in the background, kind of, and then okay. it did, like, a little fluttery thing away, so, like, I oh, know it ended happy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this whole finale is definitely, like, I think in the ballet would have been just, I mean, the climax as, as far as, like, they live happily ever after. Okay. So it definitely it, felt like that. Yeah, it, it sounds very, like, regal. There are a lot of brass instruments, and... It's actually interesting because even though this is much more along like the romantic side of things, Stravinsky already is using some elements that are going to show up in Rite of Spring because in this piece, the time signature that it's in is an like uneven time signature. So it's in 7-4, which means there are seven beats in a measure, which makes it feel like there's not really 
I mean, like there's a beat that you can feel, but it's not something that we encounter in like popular music. 7-4 would never show up on the radio. Yeah, I guess like in my head, like thinking about it, there's not like something I would necessarily, I couldn't pick out a thread to tap my foot along to. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the like hallmarks of like 7-4 or 5-4 or any like non-divisible number (laughs) on top of something else. So that's something that he's going to use later in Rite of Spring, but between like Firebird and when Rite of Spring happened, he had kind of conceived Rite of Spring as this sequel to Firebird in that it's similar subject material, it's based on a folk tale or like folkloric sort of things, Um, but he kind of got sidetracked and wrote another ballet in between called Petrushka, which was even more popular than Firebird. And has much lighter subject matter. It's, I mean, without going into the plot too much, it involves like some puppets and then like other people who are real people. Anyway, it's also, <laughs> it's a little bit more dissonant in some cases than Firebird. Um, there's a specific chord in it that Stravinsky is famous for called the Petrushka chord, uh, which is not important to our discussion of Rite of Spring. Did the puppets want to become real boys and girls? I honestly don't know the plot of Petrushka that well. That's fine. I learned it at one point and it has since left my mind. That's fair. So after the great reception of Petrushka, um, Stravinsky really wanted to revisit this more folkloric subject material. And at the time, he was calling the sequel to Firebird The Great Sacrifice. And like when I say it's a sequel, It's not a sequel as in, like, it's carrying on the story of the Firebird. It's just a sequel in that it has similar subject matter. Hmm. So the French name, which is the true name of Rite of Spring, is, and I am absolutely not going to say this correctly, but it's La Sacre du Printemps, which is just the Rite of Spring Sounds a lot better than how I would have said that. (laughs) Well, I did take a semester of French diction. I don't think it stuck very well. Uh, The plot of Rite of Spring is set in the Stone Age. So it's a prehistoric ballet that is set in, like, not, I mean, Russia, I guess, but the Slavic countries somewhat. And it's kind of building on this movement called uh, primitivism. which is not an easy word to say. But primitivism was something that was happening in different art forms during this time. So Picasso was playing with primitivism in in his visual art. Hmm. And then there were also Russian poets who had been tackling the idea of this era before Christianity kind of came in and colored everything. Interesting. So is this another, um, like, folktale? Or is it, like, an original idea just in the era that people are exploring? Well, it's kind of more historical than that. Oh, okay. So it's almost like a history? A little bit. So what Stravinsky did is he actually, like, talked to a guy who was kind of an expert in this part of Russian history Mm. and 
came up with the idea through that. And it's a little bit of an amalgamation of different rituals and ideas from history and from folk tales. But it's very much more historical than it is like here is this happy folktale where there are mythical beasts. Gotcha. Uh, some of the plot is taken directly from an 11th century monk's observations on Slavic pagan rituals, such as that there were no marriages and that the people who were living in these pagan villages would just kind of sleep with whoever they wanted as long as they were both consenting and some men would have like two or three wives. So I guess it's like it being the early 1900s were people cool with like that display of like paganism. Well, I think stages and things. I think people were definitely interested in it. And as like we'll talk about later, the subject matter of Rite of Spring really had nothing to do with the riot. It's more how the choreographer and how Stravinsky portrayed the subject material in new ways that had not been seen before. Okay. So some other things about Rite of Spring is that it uses an absolutely massive orchestra, like huge. Some of the instruments that are used in it are instruments that like we wouldn't usually see in an orchestra. Like what? Well, for example, here is a list of all of the percussion instruments that are included in Rite of Spring. So just the percussion section is a bass drum, a guero, which I should have looked up what that was, but I did not. So please don't ask me about it, Seth. Um, cymbals, antique cymbals, a gong, tambourine, triangle, timpano piccolo, which is I just like a little baby timpani, and then four large timpani. And in just like a usual orchestra for usual pieces, like you might, you usually have timpani. And you might have, like, a bass drum and a triangle. Maybe. Can I ask you a question about other instruments that you just listed? Yes. What's there between the cymbal and an antique cymbal? I don't know that either. Allie! <laughs> I guess I need to do better research next time. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming it's just a, like, more previous form of a cymbal. Just where... an old cymbal. Yeah, well, I mean, not even necessarily old, but, like, the last iteration of the symbol. Like, maybe they came up with a better symbol, and this is the one before the better symbol. We'll have to debate having an episode about the history of the symbol. The history of the symbol. I think that we would have to have a special guest on for, because I know nothing about percussion instruments. Anyway, Rite of Spring is divided into two parts. The Adoration of the Earth, which is kind of like the first act, and then the Sacrifice, which is the second act. Both have like little introductory sections and several movements within them so that it's really a like multi-movement piece. They're just like these two big halves. Is it like um, stage theater where there would be like an intermission between the two acts kind mm-hmm. of thing? Yeah, it would. I guess it's ballet, so it's not like a traditional symphony. No. And I mean, like, the whole thing is about an hour. Oh. I guess I was expecting it to be longer. <laughs> oh, really? Well, okay. So, actually, at the premiere of Rite of Spring, it was premiered with three other ballets on oh. the same night. Fascinating. Yeah. So, like, I mean, if you were going to the ballet, you were going for an evening of entertainment. Like, a full evening. Huh. But 
Rite of Spring was choreographed by Václav Nijinsky, who is kind of known as like the best male dancer of the entire 20th century. However, he, well, depending on who you talk to, is not as good of a choreographer as he is a dancer. Mm. So this was really one of his first um, choreographing efforts. Uh, He had had a couple before, one of which was a ballet that Debussy wrote, and it was like way too sexual, and audiences were kind of like, mmm, Nijinsky, we don't know that you know what you're doing. What is sexual for back then? Oh, well, we'll probably have to do an episode on this ballet too, but essentially, like, it's the after prelude to the afternoon of a fawn and the fawn just like has sex with oh again fuzzy on the details but like that's how it ends <laughs> is the fawn has sex on stage so the first thing that is kind of different about rite of spring is that it opens with a bassoon solo but in a register so in like it's way higher than a bassoon would usually play so at the beginning, you can't really, like, tell that it's a bassoon necessarily. Like, you might think it's another reed instrument, like an oboe. But it's very sparse feeling and just kind of sets the stage for the entire ballet. So we're going to listen to that right now. So there's not a ton going on in that like little snippet of the recording. And that's kind of what makes it so out there. It's based on a Lithuanian like wedding folk song. And the thing with folk music, which bunches of composers had been bringing this into their compositions in the early 1900s slash late 1800s. But generally before this point when we hear folk songs it's like it brings up this more familiar like still a little exotic because they were always eastern european folk songs but like homey in a way whereas this is just very kind of brutalistic and sparse and just super simple but alienating in a way yeah it didn't sound homey in the slightest i actually uh <laughs> i feel like i'm gonna be drawing just movie ties to me that's, that's great what I though know. uh it felt like you probably don't know this as well because you've barely seen them uh like the beginning of uh star wars a new hope when he's or like just kind of whenever they're on tatooine and he's looking out amongst like the barren desert kind of things so it's a very simple it's like it's a very similar kind of feel in my head at least barren is a great way to describe it i feel like that's a super good adjective for this thank you good job (laughs) so getting more into the plot of this a little bit it's i mean plot is loose but in the second half of it specifically it's about a virgin sacrifice to a slavic sun god 
And essentially, the virgin sacrifice is she's self-sacrificing because she's dancing herself to death. You said this was a historical piece, right? Not a... Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, but in the way that, like, the Incas did human sacrifice. Okay. Not... I mean, like, the sun god is not there, and he's not real. I mean, I guess he could be real. Who's to say? But she thinks that he's real and thinks that he needs a virgin sacrifice. Gotcha. So we're going to listen to a little bit of the sacrificial dance. But before we do that, we need to just talk about it a little bit. Because this one is a really weird one. And Out of, like, most sacrificial dances? Well, <laughs> I mean, like, musically. And, yes, I mean, it's a sacrificial dance, so you could probably guess that it's going to be a little stranger. But, musically, it's very out there. So it uses the entire orchestra at a very, very loud volume. And mm. this is one of the largest orchestras that, to this point, had been put together. So like really just this wall of sound that the audience probably wasn't used to. It ends the entire ballet. Like the ballet ends by the virgin dying after her sacrificial dance. <laughs> um, and in this, Stravinsky utilizes some rhythmic techniques that are a little uncommon for the time. So he goes from a measure of 516 to a measure of 316. So 516th notes in a measure to 316th notes in a measure. And it sort of gives this a very like off balance, off kilter sort of feel. And that's because the dance that she's doing is not like a beautiful dance. And this also comes down to Nijinsky's choreography. It mm. involves a lot of like leaping and landing really hard, like stamping on the ground, and a lot of movements with the body and with the arms that specifically reflect what the music is doing. So instead of like the beautiful lines that we might think of go with ballet, it's more jerky movements that are really angular and not what the audience was expecting. So the beginning of breakdancing. It's very much maybe closer to that. Than... We started popping and locking. <laughs> In this virginal sacrifice. <laughs> well... No, but <laughs> kind of. So the beginning of this dance section uses a rhythmic ostinato, which would have been like a familiar sort of rhythmic thing to the French audience. That's not very familiar to me, though. Okay, well, I was going to explain it anyway, so I'm glad you asked. An ostinato is a rhythmic figure that happens over and over and over again while something over the top changes. So I'm thinking like under pressure would be a good sort of like ostinato figure where it's like bum 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 and that happens really throughout the song. Yeah, exactly. And that is a technique that's been happening like since the Baroque era. So not that foreign to a French audience, but foreign in the fact that it's kind of boring. And very, very, very repetitive. So let's listen to that excerpt. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, definitely uh, feels like somebody's being sacrificed there. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing is actually the something that I po- caught from listening to that this time that I've never caught before is the first like ba 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 da da that happens after like the really low string ostinato. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a trombone, I'm pretty sure, and trombones throughout classical music, like starting way back with Mozart, have been a symbol of death. Hmm. Why? I don't know. Because everybody hates the trombone? No, I think it's probably more likely that in Mozart's time, the trombone was not very, like, refined as an instrument. Mm-hmm. And so it just had a harsh sound. And so it was... It sounded like death. Yeah. So it probably just, like, didn't sound the greatest. And so he used it to symbolize death. And everyone else has since. So that's an interesting thing from that. But the string ostinato that's going on underneath that kind of like changes volume in the middle and like gets a little louder, but you can tell it's the same rhythmic pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, It's kind of just like there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was not really doing anything at all. Yeah, not super attention grabbing. But I mean, this specific piece that that's from is the last movement of the sacrificial dance segment and it's only four and a half minutes and so that's part of it but we're gonna listen to another part of it that is even more wild so just before we listen to that the next section is Stravinsky is using a different rhythmic technique here where he changes meter so that it feels like the downbeat is constantly changing the downbeat is generally the first beat of any measure and it's called a downbeat because that's like when the conductor moves their hand down but in this section it kind of like you can't really tell where the downbeat is it's just kind of a wash of sound where it's very ambiguous like it's very rhythmic but there's no like this is where the beat starts or where the section starts And this is the section that really would have been most foreign to Parisian audiences because this is something that is fairly common in Russian folk music. But unless you were like in the backwoods of Russia, like you probably would have never heard something like this. So this is another little section of the sacrificial dance that's a lot different, a lot less boring. That's it. It sounded like uh, just like an avalanche of sounds. And I was surprised that it just kind of stopped. <laughs> well, it stops because she dies. She drops dead on the stage. Oh, and that's just like... And that's the end. Complete silence. Yeah. Because she stops dancing. Well. Yeah. I guess yeah. there's no more reason for music. <laughs> <laughs> so... This brings us to the actual like performance premiere of Rite of Spring and its reception. So there's like 
there's a lot of mystery and like intrigue surrounding this and some of it is dubious as far as to like the level of what this riot actually was but we do have evidence that um people were from almost the very beginning were laughing and talking to each other because of just how absurd the bassoon intro is and how different it is and because of immediately as the um the dancers came out on stage they were doing those jerky movements that the audience just found very humorous so is that like uh is that super out of character for attending a ballet? Like, if you were going to a funny ballet, would it be expected that you could, like, laugh? Oh, absolutely. Talk? Yeah, that's more of a more recent concert convention in that, like, you have to be absolutely silent during a concert. Like, people would have cheered or they would have booed stuff if they didn't like it. And in this specifically, they, at one point, were booing so much that you could not hear the orchestra over the sound of the crowd even with how large this orchestra was even with how large this orchestra was which is wild and this all leading up like the kind of the first inkling that this might not go well is when stravinsky played like a piano version of the whole thing for the guy that he wanted to conduct it and the conductor as soon as it was over left the room pulled diaghilev aside and was like I'm not going to conduct that. Um, Diaghilev ended up talking him into it, but maybe they should have realized that if this famous Parisian like conductor didn't want to really conduct this, that maybe they shouldn't put it up in front of an audience. Or at least maybe the audience wasn't ready for it. So was he... Is it like more because of the music or just like the whole thing together? Well, I think at that point, the conductor had only heard the music. Okay, and he just was like... I'm not about this. Like. Yeah, exactly. And wow. Debussy, who was a French composer and a contemporary of Stravinsky, who actually had a ballet premiered the same night as Rite of Spring, he heard Stravinsky play a piano version. And he actually, like, kind of liked it. He said that it haunted him like a beautiful nightmare, <laughs> which, I mean... It's an incredibly backhanded compliment. Yeah. But, I mean, at least he didn't, like, say that he hated it. It's a win. Yeah. Definitely should go on. <laughs> um, but another, like, they did a dress rehearsal the night before the opening, and they had several critics present, and they seemed to, like, mostly be okay with it. Uh, one critic was kind of like, mm, this probably won't go well because the audience might think that you're, like, making fun of them and making fun of, like, their sensibilities as far as classical music is concerned. But another critic said, that like this is truly a new thrill which will surely raise passionate discussions but which will leave all true artists with an unforgettable impression which kind of harkens back a little bit to like the hoity-toityness of classical music because he's like you'll get this if you're a true artist the hipsters of the world back then yes so there was a lot of buzz leading up to the premiere Ticket prices were doubled in anticipation because, like, they knew it was going to sell out. So they were like, let's milk it for all it's worth. Um, and another, like, problem with this is that a Parisian ballet would have had two different types of audiences. The rich people who sat up in the boxes and then the more, like, proletariat sort of crowd who sat in the, like, house. 
Okay. And oftentimes there would be like some butting heads between those two crowds anyway. But the rich people would kind of want to hear what they always had heard. And they're like, they're paying for these boxes. They want to hear the lush romantic symphonies. Um, whereas the less bougie crowd was kind of like, we're artists and we like anything kind of that the rich crowd doesn't like. Gotcha. So they think that that's also a reason that this was so incredibly like the reception to it was so crazy was because like the rich op or the rich ballet goers didn't like it. And we're expressing their displeasure. And so as a result, the people on the floor felt that they had to express their pleasure. And it just kind of like created this cacophony that drowned out the orchestra and um, had to have people ejected from the audience. Wow. So like did it. So we have previews nowadays for movies and stuff. Mm. Was there anything like that for ballets back then where it was like, hey this is kind of what this is going to be about? Or was it just purely like, this is the composer, this is the name, come figure out what it is? I mean, yeah, and there might be like a hand-illustrated playbill of some sort. Like posters would be up, um, probably something showing like dancers in costume. and But no sense of like the feel. No, not necessarily. And I think that like in those days, the composers were the draw, but also specific like ballerinas and specific dancers were also the draw and so i'm sure that to a certain extent people were like oh well stravinsky he wrote these other two great ballets uh but also we have nijinsky who's choreographing it and he's like one of the best dancers ever and so of course everyone's gonna go see it that makes sense so definitely not very well received they're like audience members were throwing things down into the orchestra and I mean, the show went on, surprisingly, throughout the whole thing. But um, when the dancer fell dead at the end of the sacrificial dance, um, like, people thought she had actually just danced herself into, like, a, I don't know. Just, like, passed out. Into a spell, yeah. And, like, people were calling for, like, a doctor in the house and stuff like that. Wow. So, just overall, not a great premiere. That sounds like a fantastic premiere to me. Yeah. I mean, probably it would have been very fun to witness. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like, at the time, it's like the whole draw of the uh, that Spider-Man Broadway musical where you go to see if the guy <laughs> will fall off his fly line. Oof, <laughs> oof. <laughs> Stravinsky would be rolling over in his grave hearing you compare this to <laughs> Spider-Man the musical. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much all. Just a little bit though, going forward as far as like why. This was so incredibly, like, groundbreaking. Well, so I guess really quick. Um, so was the riot, as far as you can tell, mostly just contained to, like, in the theater? Or is it, like, a riot how we think where it's, like, spilled out into the streets? No, I think it was mostly contained to the theater. And, okay. like, there are different accounts. You can't sure. really tell what's true. It's a riot compared to most classical music classical concert. music audiences. Okay. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. And some of the reasons that this might have been just like received this way is like Rite of Spring. It's talking about like spring, the season. Mm-hmm. And up to this point, spring has always been represented in classical music as like a super pastoral, beautiful like subject. 
people don't die in spring. Yeah, exactly. Spring is rebirth. And that is definitely not what's happening here. Like explicitly yeah. dying <laughs> she's very much dead well and i guess like one thing to die is just yeah. sacrifice well and that. that's another thing too is that like this was kind of like she was taking on this sacrifice for the good of her community and during this time like philosophically it's a lot more like individualist like this is the time to be out for yourself mm. and this ballet is kind of completely turning that on its head as well hmm. as just being the like most savage aggressive music that most people had ever heard <laughs> um one critic said that it was a laborious and puerile barbarity wow and another said we are sorry to see an artist such as monsieur stravinsky involve himself in this disconcerting adventure So, <laughs> despite its reception, about a year later, Stravinsky turned it into an orchestral suite. And I think that without Nijinsky's choreography, it was a lot more palatable to audiences. And it became, like, pretty much an instant hint. Really? Mm-hmm. Is it just because, like, at that point, then, you're not, I guess you're not physically seeing the thing on the stage happen? Yeah. and it's hard to in like a podcast to fully get across what this choreography was like sure um but it was really really new and literally had like no one had done anything like it before and i think that it just kind of went against what ballet is supposed to be which is supposed to be beautiful and this was not beautiful it was powerful and kind of cataclysmic in ways if you do want to go ahead and see a little bit of the ballet we'll include a link in our description of this episode well we'll include a link to a recreation of the ballet Nijinsky didn't take very good notes on his choreography and so we don't really have a surviving like version of this people have gone back and tried to create versions of it and some people have gone back and completely re-choreographed it but Nijinsky's actual original choreography just does not exist so I guess how many times did they perform this was it just like the one time and it was like oh my god this is awful and then it just well so they did take it on tour for about a year and I mean the reception was like fine there was some like I mean they drew audiences just because of what had happened in Paris. But, I mean, after the original tour, no. It kind of just morphed into a concert piece, which is what it is mostly today. Usually ballet companies don't put on Rite of Spring. Interesting. Yeah, but a lot of major orchestras perform the work because it's incredibly difficult for the orchestra and is really impressive because of the size of the orchestra. And it's also just like... I personally think it's such a cool piece because it's one of those that is so constantly changing that even though it is an hour long, it kind of holds your attention instead of like you zoning out during like Beethoven or something. That's really cool. So really, going back to kind of our mission statement for this podcast, when we mean accessible, we want people to be able to feel like it's okay to riot. <laughs> at classical concerts 
I guess. That definitely is like something I want to go into in further episodes is just how stuffy classical music has become and how it definitely like you can have fun at a classical music concert and we should be playing music like Rite of Spring in places where people can express their emotions while they're listening. Because like really what could be a more authentic performance experience than also seeing how other people are reacting to what you're listening to yeah i agree i feel like um it's almost more okay to do that kind of thing at like just normal stage performances especially like musicals i guess depending on the musical but um i think it'd be really cool to be able to feel like you can do that i feel like that's part of the reason why it feels so inaccessible is just because you feel like you can't yeah exactly and i mean if somebody plays a really kick-ass solo in the middle of an orchestral work i want to be able to like hoop and holler for them and like express my appreciation for their talent and their hard work yeah or at like jazz concerts and stuff where they do cool solos and everybody cheers when the yeah exactly done. like why not do that in classical music like i mean there are places where it would feel a little weird like the end of this bassoon solo at the beginning <laughs> of rite of spring like i don't think anyone's gonna stand up and cheer for that no matter how difficult it is to play but there are definitely there's a place for that in classical music and I just I want people to be interested in this as much as I am because it's so cool and there's so much history entwined in it. Um, just yeah. <laughs> so as you can probably tell, uh, as we've mentioned a couple times throughout this, there's a ton of different ideas we have for subject matter and different things we want to talk about through this podcast. So uh, if you do choose to give us a listen, please uh, feel free to leave us a review or something and or uh some kind of feedback let us know what you thought of it or anything in particular you want to hear about questions and stuff we'd love to get topic ideas from other people not just us yeah and let us know if there are questions that you have about this episode or about any of the terms that we use in the episode i definitely forget that like my knowledge of music is not the knowledge of other people and so things that i think are very simple sometimes i might forget to explain but let me know yeah so this was our first episode of clef notes ever um about the ride of spring um thanks for giving us a listen yay Thank you.